All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation. The last couple weeks were heavy towards the recent history of Afghanistan and how it all started on 9-11. This week we'll transition a little bit, but we'll stick towards the global war on terrorism. When a service member receives orders to go across the pond and bring the fight to the enemy, there are orders that affect their loved ones as well. These are the people that make us tick when we get on that jet plane. It gives us our end goal to get off that jet plane of the t- at the end of the tour upright. The family puts on a strong face and goes about living their lives trying to maintain some kind of normalcy. Despite the void left by this service member's absence, the kids are still playing sports, joining all the clubs they would have if both parents were on, just that now one is holding down the fort. They send care packages with lots of care put into them, knowing that the other half of the team needs to see things that keeps them motivated to continue to fight at 100% fierceness on the other side of the world. Spouses at home also understands the possibility that the other half may be injured or die at the hands of the enemy while in combat. They go over this together before deployment. Update wills, power of attorneys, and the life plans that will include do not resuscitate plans, and of course, where and how they want to get their life, have their life celebrated. To those who are not aligned with the service, this may sound morbid. It may sound like a negative vibes. It is, however, the reality of serving. People throw around words, sayings. These young, one, young men and women raise their right hand and sign their blank check to their country. This is a reality for many service members that they have to live with. Yes, not all jobs in the military are naturally designed to be in combat. That changed with the new way of war. Everyone is in the crossfire. Everyone is in the line of fire and must have that in the back of their minds at all times. The spouse at home has anxiety rushes with every ring of the telephone at an odd hour or if someone comes to the door unexpectedly. Something the spouse is never expecting during these trips is for the spouse to be killed by his fellow service member. Loss is gut-wrenching enough, but to have it happen this way brings other feelings to the table such as rage, anger that go with the trauma. Our next guest is a gold star spouse and has dealt with this firsthand. She's an amazing person. So without further ado, let's get Barbara Allen on here. Allen, author, gold star wife, and host of the podcast american snippets with uh, mr dave brown how are you today barbara i'm good thanks how are you pretty good uh, it's a good friday i guess yeah glad this week is almost over and heading to the weekend to do some fun stuff you have any plans this weekend um uh, yeah we're just gonna take a little family time um take a few deep breaths before the next round of really busyness hits us of course of course uh, do you have school starting up for family soon, or is it at the end of the month? No, we're in the East Coast, so okay. they don't start till usually after Labor Day. Right, yeah. And my wife goes back uh, next week, basically, with her students. So she's really excited. What are they, what's their mask issue? Do they are they wearing masks? Or are they not? As of today, they're not wearing masks. That's so, it, but usually the the hurt till last second and do some knee-jerk reaction kind of thing and they'll make up something on monday or tuesday to make them all go nuts yeah maddening yes so if you don't mind barbara tell us a little bit about your story um 
from as far back as you want to go till here we <laughs> I guess where the relevant parts of the story begin are in uh, 2005 when my husband Lou was killed in Iraq. Um, you know, we found out very shortly after we found out that he was killed, we found out that an American soldier had been arrested for for murdering him and the commanding officer. And that just sent all of us, you know, and me especially, I guess, uh, into just a downward spiral that took me years and years and years to get out of. Um, and it was a three and a half year process for the military court martial where they wound up acquitting the soldier who killed my husband and the commanding officer, even though he had submitted a guilty plea. So there was, you know, all these extra layers of just confusion and pain woven into an already confusing and painful time. So, you know, I wasn't really equipped with the best resiliency uh, skills there at the time. So I was just outgunned by everything in my life. And it took a it took a really long time to kind of get my feet back up under me and be the best mom I could be to my four kids and just get my life back together. Oh, definitely. And that's, uh, I'm sorry about your husband. Uh, I was actually in the army until 2015 and that's a, your story. I read it. And that's why I first booked you it was because of the story and it's horrendous what happened. It's horrendous how it was treated and the outcome is even uh, sickening. I'd like to say from the military standpoint and now you and your, your family is gold star family because of this. I have to deal with that every day, knowing that there was no justice really served. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was, it was very hard to wrap my mind around and, and just find a way to move, move past it, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's just part of, that's really what led me to all the lessons I've learned and the people that I met and sent me on the path that got me where I am today, but it was a long, long, hard path. So, you know, that's what I like to tell people who are going through things that they believe they can't get through you know they can't get through one more day or one more minute of this or they just don't know how they're ever going to live again or feel happy again or joy again um i like to now be able to be that kind of anchor on the other side of it for them that they can grab onto we can pull them over you know outstanding yes and i like to i tell people all the time when they're starting to hit that wall do not make a permanent decision on a temporary problem, although it may be reoccurring the problem, it's still a temporary problem at that time. And you could seek help or friends or family or even the help of a medical professional that can actually talk you through something at that point and get you over that hump for that day or that week or that month to get you out of the darkness and back into the light of life. Yeah, absolutely. So what do, how do you talk about repeated trauma? Um, yeah, and that's hard, right? I think that's called, uh, or part of it is called complicated grief, where there's just different layers. And you know, when you, I get together with the other widows, we, the ones that I'm close to, you know, we have kind of a dark sense of humor, so we'll all kind of make fun of each other, you know. And so I can say this to them in the spirit that I hope it is received here is that it's just lighthearted, not super serious. But you know, when I say that my husband didn't die like a normal death, so on top of the pain of any death, where where you're just feeling that loss and you're feeling that shock and you're feeling that grief and all those things, the hits just kept coming, right? Then you find out that he was murdered. Then you find out that you've already been lied to. Then you find out 
this and that and that. Then you spend three and a half years going back and forth to military bases, the first one in Kuwait, to sit in the same room as the person who killed the person that you love so much. You know, so it's just on and on. You relive it in court over and over and over and media. And it, so it was like literally for three and a half years, it just kept coming at me, coming at me, coming at me. So I didn't really have much of a chance to catch my breath or work on me at all because I, I was in a constant reactive state. Right. So if I had been able to approach all of that from a different state where I had approached it from a place of strength instead of a place where I was about as weak as I could possibly be, it would have been an entirely different outcome for me. So, you know, anybody going through something in general, but especially where it's repeated trauma, repeated trauma, repeated trauma needs to kind of show yourself a little bit of grace and, you know, take the very first and any opportunity you can get to take a few step back and just have that space to focus on yourself for a little while and do the work on yourself and heal yourself a little bit uh, along the way, you know, just give yourself that room and, and space to be able to do so find that find people who have been through something that they also thought they couldn't get through and, and talk to them, find people online, read the stories. Like there's, you got to take a proactive approach and uh, really understand that you're not being selfish if you sometimes need to put yourself first definitely that's a that's great advice right there and in your case the repeated trauma just kept coming at you and and i'm sure at your stage having the children at home and i'm sure they didn't come with you to kuwait so you had to worry about them at home and you're in kuwait with the the ucmj trial going on the court martial started there and i think it ended at fort bragg is uh where it finally ended i believe and uh, that's a lot of traveling, a lot of time away, a lot of time in your own head. And that's a, a lot of stuff that compounds upon you. Yeah. And my kids were little. They were six, five, three and one when my husband was killed. And then they found out that it was another soldier that killed him. And then they found out that I would be going over to Kuwait where their dad had flown to surrounded by other soldiers like their dad was. And they were terrified. They thought that I was going to get killed, too, you know, so there's that end of it to deal with it all as well. When you're trying to deal with your own overwhelming pain and grief, but yet you still have to figure out how to lead four very small children who are at very small developmental stages through the next 18 years of their lives. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little something extra. Uh, have any of them decided to take a path of going into military or either into the, the legal profession to try to stop this from happening to someone else? Um, most of them are not my one son, my third oldest son, who actually shares Lou's birthday. He is uh, about to enter his junior year of college, hell bent on becoming the best ballistics expert in the FBI. You know, that is his path. And he wants to make sure he is a part of preserving and investigating evidence properly. So what happens in our case doesn't happen in another case. That's that's great. And a lot of times when the children are young, like they were, they have it in their head what they want to do to make it better. And that's what your son is doing. And that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So you've, you've also done the, the TED Talks, too, I believe. Or uh, yeah, I got to do a TEDx talk. That was very cool. It's because someone believed in me and gave me a chance. And, uh, and that was a great experience that opened up a lot of doors for me and helped me build a lot of relationships that have been very significant in my life. So 
I'm very grateful for that. So I know the process of getting onto the TEDx stage is it's pretty daunting to get your speech down and you tell your story and the practice and all that stuff. So how did you go about learning to tell your story and then also be able to put it into a book or write like we're doing now in an interview? Uh, you mean for that specific talk or just in general? In general. Yeah, it's hard at first. It took me a very long time before I could speak about any of it without breaking down. Uh, and then I got to the point where I could speak about it without breaking down, but it would impact me. You know, even six or seven years ago, if I did an interview like this, I would have to take the rest of the day off because it would just stir up so many things that were still so raw for me. Uh, and it would impact my mood and my concentration, my ability to focus and function. It would just all be impacted. So I would have to schedule them very strategically so that I knew I would be able to just kind of go hide a little bit or not have to be on for anybody for a little while. So that is a skill you have to develop over time and you have to do it on your own timeline. You can't force it or push it because when you do, it just catches up to you, right? So if you're going to have your breakdown for a minute, you got to just, you know, set that timer and give yourself that 10, 15 minutes to have the breakdown and get it out and get up and get on. Because if you try to squash it and pretend you don't need to have it, it just builds up and gets worse and backfires on you until you finally have a way worse meltdown than you would have if you had given yourself the grace to have it in the first place. So uh, I had to figure all that out before I knew I could figure out how to tell my story and talk about it on public stages and interviews like this. And that is a lot to figure out on, especially if you're doing it on your own without a, I guess, a coach to, to be there to push your, push your buttons and tell you what to do. That's a lot of work to get through at that point. Yeah. What I wound up doing is at one point in my life where it had just become such an ultimate, ultimate disaster. Uh, you know, I had to make the decision all right, now is the time I have to sort of take accountability for my own life and put myself back together. And I made that commitment to myself right there that day. And I had to learn how to change a lot of habits, change a lot of the negative content I was consuming, the negative people I was around, and um, the negative thoughts I was saying to myself. I had to find people online who I could study and watch and learn and read their stories and listen to their talks and repeat those messages over and over in my head and buy different books that were inspirational and watch inspirational movies. And then I connected in person with mentors. You know, from the beginning, I had a really great and special mentor. Her name is Terry Seifer. Her husband had been killed in Kuwait uh, by another soldier about two years before my husband was killed. And Lou and I had actually followed that case together very closely. And in, I think it was in September, uh, or not or March, maybe. I don't know. It wasn't very long before my husband was killed that her husband's killer was convicted. And we watched that in the news and saw that and talked about the the outcome. And then just a couple months later, there I am finding out that my husband was also <laughs> murdered. And I'm about to go sit into the same courtroom that Terry sat and work with one of the same prosecutors that Terry worked with. And I was able to reach out and get in touch with her and she very graciously answered my call. And even though things were so fresh and so raw herself, she opened herself up to me and literally guided and mentored me through those next steps that I was going to have to take. And that's invaluable. So I, you know, we're still in touch today. So I think that's really great. And that is something that I tell people. One of the examples I use to tell people 
the importance of finding that mentor. And when someone says to me, oh, but nobody can understand what I've been through. My situation is so crazy, so bizarre. No one else has ever possibly gone through what I've gone through. A, I call bullshit on that because you're not that special. And there's always someone who's been through something that you've been through. But B, you know, you can piece it together. If you have 12 different layers of trauma that you're going through, you don't need to find one person who's gone through all those 12 different layers of trauma or building a business or parenting or whatever it is, whatever challenge or task you're looking to do that you need guidance on. You can break that down into several different mentors and find somebody who knows one of every skill set that you're looking to learn yourself and follow them, break it down, simplify it for yourself. But there is absolutely a mentor out there for everybody and doing whatever you have to do. Sometimes you have to pay for their time and that's totally worth it. Sometimes you have to pay to put yourself in the place where they are, but you know, that's also totally worth it. Sometimes you got to add value to them first before you can get in the door with them. There's all different ways. Or sometimes you just study them online or read their books or buy them a cup of coffee if they're in your community, but all different ways to do it. So find that person that knows what it is you want to know how to do yourself and reach out to them and learn from them in whatever way is available to you. That's, that's definitely true. In going in alone in most things in life, no matter what the instance is, it, it's rough. And a lot of people don't understand it. They have that hard head and think they can make it through everything on their own. But it's always good to have the voice of reason in your ear, whether it is a mentor that you met like uh, Terry Seifert or others that you were able to go see on, watch on the YouTube or wherever to see how they spoke and things like that to get your story across. It always takes more than you. It's a cliche, but it, it takes the village to make you successful or make you a better person. It does. And some of the cooler moments I had with the people that I selected to study and learn, what the first two were Dr. Sean Stevenson and Nick Boychik. I don't know if you're familiar with either of them, but I had to find people who were dealing with something that seemed so enormously overwhelming, but also who I could not compare to myself because I knew I would compare myself negatively. So they needed to have nothing similar to mine other than they found a way to deal with something most people would give in under. And both of them were born with um, severe physical abnormalities. Dr. Sean Stevenson was born with osteogenesis imperfecta, which means like all the bones in his body continued to break. He never grew to be more over, I think, three and a half feet tall. And Nick Wojcik was born with a condition that meant he was born with no arms and no legs. And both of these men went on in their lives to achieve things the average person would never dream of achieving, you know, meeting presidents and running multi-million dollar companies and impacting literally millions of people around the world. And here I am running my podcast. I get to interview Dr. Sean Stevenson. And then right not long before COVID hit, I spoke on a stage right before Nick Boychik and I got to meet him as well to you know, huge full circle moments for me that are just proof of what happens if you find those people and you believe and you apply what they teach, you know, <laughs> where that will lead you. And the other is my good friend, Taya Kyle, whose husband was killed after mine. You know, he was the American sniper. And so he was killed after my husband was, but I admired her from the get go. And life led me into the same place that she was at the same time. And we met and now we're really great friends and kind of mentor each other. So they're there. You just have to be open for those opportunities to find those people and um, and know how to apply what, what you can learn from them. Definitely. And uh, like I knew about uh, Captain Seifert's case because I'm right here at Fort Campbell where they came out of. 
So right. it's kind of historical here. And then Taya Kyle, uh, she, when I retired from the army, her foundation, hers and Chris's foundation actually sent me and my wife on a spouse retreat and we went to Destin, Florida. And then the next year we actually went to his birthday bash and we got to meet her and she's just a great, a great human, uh, amazing person, amazing woman and very strong. It was great to meet her in person. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'll pass that on to her. And I, I, I think we were one of the first couples to go on the trips and I actually got to show her a picture of the shark that came across us where we're at Destin beach. So she laughed a little bit with us right before the, the formal part of the party started. So it was pretty awesome. cool. Yeah, that's cool. So you just talked about how to find a mentor. Have you mentored anyone since then? Uh, yes, I have actually. And it is really amazing for me to be able to do that in different capacities. You know, sometimes in person, sometimes someone will come to me and I'll work with them one on one. Sometimes it's like virtual back and forth online, uh, more of an informal section. Maybe it's just a couple emails or chats back and forth if somebody's got a problem or maybe, you know, I like actually officially work with them, uh, you know, to help them through whatever path it is they're trying to navigate. And I, I really love being able to do that. And there's something about when you find out that you also have value to provide, that is a game changer for you. And what people often struggle to realize is that we all have value to add. It, it never occurred to me that there was anything I had of value to somebody. And that was part of what kept me stuck all those years. You know, when I went back into the workforce, I worked as a veteran services officer and I got to provide value back to people and counsel people through situations. That was a gift to me because it made me understand and recognize that even though I still felt so broken at the time, those people didn't see me as broken. They saw me as somebody who was helping them through something very difficult. And that really changed the way I looked at myself. And that led me to be able to do more of what I'm doing today. And then I have a, I actually have a book that is just released today. Um, awesome. That is another way of mentoring people. It's packed with all the lessons, uh, many of the lessons that I'm talking about here and that I learned throughout my life. That is another way of mentoring people without ever, maybe I won't even meet most of these people who read this book. Right. But my words and my book will still be able to help them through. So that's also pretty freaking cool. Yes, it is. And uh, go ahead and, put the name of your book out there for the audience. Thanks. It's titled what not to wear to a murder trial and other tips tragedy taught me. And, uh, you know, I talk about people like our friend Taya Kyle in there. I don't just pull from my own experiences. I pull from some of the 200 plus people that we've interviewed on American snippets or that I've come across in my own life to, you know, collect and gather these lessons with a little splash of my irreverent humor in there um, to, you know, just kind of be that, that little nugget, that go-to guide for people who are going to be facing situations that overwhelm them the same way I was overwhelmed. That's that's great. And uh, is that on Amazon and all usual bookstore outlets? Yeah, it is on it is on Amazon right now today. I'll be spreading it to other platforms in a little bit, but for now, Amazon is it. Awesome. Uh, uh, hopefully, that, that takes off and is able to touch other people and with your story to help them get through their their struggles or let them know they're not alone in their struggles. Yeah, that's the plan. Yeah. So when I came out of the military in 2015, I retired and I thought everything would be easy, perfect getting out after 22 years. I, I knew I'd land a job within days and 
everything would be awesome and rosy. Well, it took me 365 days to find a job. So I was getting crushed mentally saying, no, I must not be worth it. I was doubting myself for the first time. My whole career, I never doubted myself. Once I got out, I started doubting myself. Once I got that first job, I realized I need to give something back. So I actually started mentoring people that were getting out and giving back to them to try to help them get over the humps of getting that job. And like you said, the value that I didn't know I had inside me to give back to my fellow veterans as they were doing their transition, it, it helped me more than it helped them probably. But I know I was able to guide them along the path better than I was guided when I came out. Yeah, that feels great, right? Yes. And the, the wave the wave of emotion going from being on top to not being able to get a job for 365 days to finally coming back and realizing I have to give back to help others so they don't go through that same 365. It, it really helped me out. And I still mentor so uh, those transitioning now. Awesome. That's another part of my eight hours a week I have left over that I can mess around with. Yeah, that's really great. So you, you mentioned humor as a way to, as a tool. Yeah. I, I believe humor is one of the best things that or smiling a lot helps me Just smiling when I get angry or I feel the anger bug coming in. So how do you do input humor into your, your recovery or to help you get through things? Um, it's that's evolved. Right. But I think in the very beginning, it's like every minute that you are laughing, even if it's an ironic, you're laughing because it's not funny thing. Every minute you're laughing is a moment for me like I wasn't crying or like I was putting the anger aside or I wasn't letting evil get to me. So it doesn't matter if you're just laughing for a heartbeat. That's one heartbeat more than you ever thought you would laugh again. Right. And so one leads to another leads to another. And the snowball effect there is really powerful. And I think humor is one of the most underrated tools in coping with stress and adversity out there. People just don't recognize. And there's a lot of people that don't appreciate my, you know, my perfect, my flavor of humor, if you will, but that's okay because we're not all meant to be, to fit everybody's palate, right? We all have different palates there. So I don't take offense to that. Uh, it's more that people get offended you know, at me or by me, but you know, that's also their choice to be offended. If I make like a dark joke about something, you know, but in my family, it got to the point that so many absurd things happens, especially when you're all alone raising four children. And for a while, I was worse than alone. I was in a relationship with someone who uh, was an addict and not a good person on top of that. So there were like different layers of trauma involved in that. And so I got to the point with me and my boys, something would happen, like the septic would back up and the ground would freeze or you know, the washing machine flooded or the car broke down or whatever. It could be all these millions of things that would go wrong in everyday life. You can either just break down or we just look at each other and I would rate it. Like, how long is it going to be before I can tell this story to someone and laugh about it? Right. And then when you put that into perspective, like, you know, I fell and broke my arm and a couple places and my sisters were on their way over. And as I'm like trying not to puke from the pain, I'm laughing because I know that my sister's are going to make such ridiculous fun of me and I deserve it because of the way that I just injured myself, you know? So when you can, um, when you can just ask yourself that quite and picture yourself telling the story, like, Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me this time or that day. And will you be able to laugh about it? And will it make other people laugh as well? Then, you know, it's really not as bad as you're thinking it is. So that for me is a really good way to frame things. Exactly. Yeah. 
in 2012, uh, I was in Afghanistan on my uh, last uh, official combat tour, and I got wounded the second day in country. And they flew me to the, the hospital out there to get surgery. And the first thing I did was ask one of the medics there for their little burner phone that they had so I could call my wife so it would be my voice talking to her instead of some stranger or someone she's never talked to before saying, hey, uh, this is the Army. Your husband got wounded. So I called her, and the first thing I told her, I said, remember the license plate we talked about? She's like, what? I said, the Purple Heart license plate. She said, yes, we're getting one. And then, of course, she screamed, broke down, hung up, said I had to kick dialed again to calm her down. So I tried humor to get through that. That's one instance where it didn't work right away. But now we laugh about it uh, so many years later. But it is a great tool. Yeah, absolutely. That was a, I guess that was a learning lesson for me of when to input the humor, uh, the timing of it, I guess. <laughs> sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> that was epic backfire. So. <laughs> so how do you help someone else who is actually going through the grief cycle? Um, there is, I mean, it's, everybody's situation is unique and sometimes people don't want help. They, you know, they're, they're not ready to get help. But if somebody reaches out to me for help, uh, depending on on the relationship that it is or what's set up, depending on is if it's a casual conversation or like I'm actually working with them as an official mentor or any of that. So there's different ways to do it. But one of the things I will tell people right off the bat is to stop fixating on these stages of grief because it's, there's two stages that are absolutely left out. And because those stages are never discussed, when people, oh, you know, you're going through, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance, and all that jazz, right? All those are very real. But when they're just left like that, when the last stage is left at acceptance or peace or whatever you want to call it, it's uh, easy for people to feel like, like they stuck at grief because they're like, okay, I accepted this, but I'm still hurting or I still miss this person or I'm still pissed off at the world or I still don't want to think it happened. Like, why well, I thought I was supposed to be through this because I'd hit acceptance, right? So, or the guilt still catches up with them. So what I will tell everybody is add on two more stages to those stages of grief. And the first one is forgiveness because you have to just let go of any guilt you're carrying, guilt over an argument that you had with that person or something you wanted to do and you didn't do or whatever guilt it is you're hanging on to, you have to let go of because you know if situations were reversed, you wouldn't want that person feeling guilty over something stupid anyway, right? And the very last stage I tell them to add is repeat and understand that you will repeat all of these cycles for the rest of your life. And once you understand that, that that is normal, that there's nothing wrong with you for repeating those cycles, you waste a lot less time being confused and feeling bad about yourself because you are experiencing those cycles again and you free yourself up to acknowledge that you're in one cycle or another and you move through it much quicker. That's that's great right there. I like that. Uh, put that way before for the stages of grief and adding the two extras. That is an amazing uh, way to do it. And I think that will help others to get over that hump that we spoke about earlier in the podcast and uh, and now. Good. So uh, the last question on your profile uh, really is near and dear to my heart since I have four of them in my house. How do we go about rescuing animals? Oh, boy. Everywhere. And you know that cliche that they rescue us. That's true, too. But don't rescue too many at a time because <laughs> you're going to pay for that. I wound up getting all of my kids their own dog because I thought it was oh, a wow. good idea. 
I, I, I'm like, I promise I thought, and I actually have a title in my book, Dead Puppies Aren't Much Fun. That's the title of a chapter because yes. one of the dogs I brought home, I brought my son home a puppy, got it vet checked and it was fine. And four days later it died. And this was supposed to be like his grief dog. You know, like, so I oh, brought wow. my like eight year old son home a puppy. He just learned to love it. And then it died like when we were still going through. So be very careful about rescuing rescuing animals yes. but um when you are intentional about it and careful i would always go to to do that they're everywhere you know and i would love to see more people foster a, a pet before they actually adopt one themselves to understand if they're actually ready to own a pet for life or if they're better as temporary pet you know a home for a place a home for a pet to crash and find a forever home and then you get a break and you move on and you pick a dog when you're ready like some people love animals but their lifestyle just doesn't accommodate a pet of their own forever so fostering is a great way to scratch that itch and make a profound impact on the animal and on the people that that animal is meant to to live with so i would really love to see more people foster animals before they especially if they've never owned one before before they go out and make that commitment to Love one forever. We see a lot of animals being dumped back at shelters now that uh, COVID is, well, somewhat opened up, right? So people right. went back to work and they dumped their shelter, their pets back at shelters because now they're going back to work. And so there's just a lot to think about before you do it, but definitely more people should do it. And you see a lot of a lot of people like to get them puppies or new animals around Christmas, get them puppies, and then when they get out of the cuteness phase of being the puppy. No, we don't want this anymore. We want something different. So then they just dump them, like you said, and they wind up they wind up at the the dog pound, the shelter, or with a nonprofit uh, rescues. And that's why we we have four rescues in our house right now. Like you, when you said don't don't rescue too many at once, well, we have four two two six year olds and two now three year olds. It's it's really a lot of fun having all of them. They all have their own personalities. We've always had at least two dogs, but having four really puts it up over that edge. Yeah. <laughs> There was a, I hear you. That's crazy. I had six dogs at once and I'm like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> and I have three dogs now and they're like, they're very, very, very attached and bonded. So I, like, I literally had to lock them two rooms away so I could do this right now. Right. Like <laughs> they're just there. And even my cats do that. Like they scream and get in my face and my horses are a little more self-sufficient, but you know, <laughs> got to take care of them. Right. It's a lot. Right. And I'm sure they get excited when they see you coming out to the, the paddock or the, the stables. Yeah, anybody else can walk through the yard and it's fine. But there are definitely mornings where I actually get my coffee and duck underneath the kitchen window so my horse doesn't see me and start yelling at me before I'm ready to go out. And Because I get up at like 4.30, 5 in the morning, you know. The dogs all follow me. I try to let them out the front door so they don't wake the horses up. But it's always a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> my oldest my oldest lab, he... Uh, He's six or about seven now. He went up over a hundred pounds. We have to rescue me at Heartworm when we got him, but we went through the whole process of cleaning him out of that. But ever since he was in the dog pound, he had to eat at four in the morning for some ungodly reason. Uh, and he that has not left his head. So he'll he'll come <laughs> and just punch me in the face at four in the morning to eat. I'll feed him and he goes back to bed. I can't go back to bed now because I'm right. wide open at that point. And I said, Thanks, bud. And he just rolls over happy because his belly's full. Right. Everyone else is miserable the rest of the day because of him. Yeah. I don't know if I think this was like a cue. My 19 year old cat is now howling on the other side of the door that I'm in. 
because you know he's heard my voice now and he must howl until I go get him. Like, mom, I need you. <laughs> it's just how they are. Yes, they're they're just they're just an extension of children, and it's fun to have them. And I'm glad I'm able to give them a better life than they were having. Yeah, that's cool. So, if someone wants to book you for a podcast or just to speak to you to be their mentor, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, you can find you can find me anywhere through American Snippets. Um, or, you know, americansnippets.com is a great way to find all of our stuff. But if you want to just reach out to me directly on Instagram, it's uh, Barb Allen Speaks. Uh, that's that's my my handle, I guess, on Instagram, and that's a pretty decent way to get in touch with me as well. All right. Uh, again, Barbara, thank you for taking your time to come on. I think your story is amazing and your resilience is even more amazing. Continue to keep pumping positivity into people and uh, trying to make their lives that much better. Thank you so much. And for those that don't know, the first, this is my second at bat here on the show. He very kindly gave me a second at bat when I got so swept up in my world. I literally just forgot that I had this scheduled, which I should never do. And I'm so glad he gave me a second at bat. So thank you so much for that. Well, this at bat, you hit a home run. Wow. What an amazing person Barbara is. Thanks for sharing with us your journey through this situation and sharing your story with us. And of course, hitting a home run on this interview. We here at the Misfit Nation are huge supporters of mental health. We may not agree with the practices the head shrinkers use, such as over-medicating people or even group therapy. But we know a strong mind is needed to make it through this dance we call life. If you are feeling lost or think the world would be better without you, stop, take a breath, phone a friend. Call the friggin' hotlines. Make moves to better yourself. People love you and will most certainly miss you. Get the help you need now. You know how we do it here. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us here on The Misfit Nation. If you could, please follow us on your favorite podcasting apps. Share us with your network and keep this ride going. If you know an energetic guest that will captivate the audience... Please send them our way. We appreciate you. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling. Because we are the Misfit Nation.